0: You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time that we have to spend time in your word. Lord, we ask that you would bless in Jesus' name. Amen. The evidence of New Testament archaeology, biblical archaeology, why is it important? Some people may have doubts as to whether or not the Bible is is true or not. And when we study biblical archaeology, it gives us evidence, it gives us reasons to believe, right? While no one archaeological find proves that the Bible is absolutely true, it's when there are hundreds and thousands and millions of biblical archaeological finds that make up the total picture of what Bible archaeology has to offer us. So when you put it all together, you can see that the things that the Bible said in history are in fact actual. So if we can trust the Bible historically, then that means we can trust the Bible spiritually. That's what Bible archaeology does for us. It helps us to come to the conclusion that I can receive the Bible as historically accurate. All right, from the book... Is Atheism Dead? by Eric Mertaxas, page 122. He says, I have read many more such things and have come to wonder whether the spades and pickaxes of archaeologists have been doing what the telescopes and microscopes of the scientists have been doing. It seems slowly but surely they, the archaeologists, have been pointing unavoidably to the paradigm shifting idea that the God of the Bible is real. So again, let's ask, we have a couple new faces here today. What are the criteria that Biblical archaeologists use to determine what is and what is not a legitimate discovery? The discovery must be directly related to Biblical people or groups, places, events, or it must be related to the composition of the Bible itself. Now, we saw yesterday reasons to believe from the Old Testament. Now let's see reasons to believe from the New Testament. All right. New Testament finds Sergius Paulus inscription. There's several of these. these. This stone bearing the name Sergius Paulus was discovered near Pisidia and Antioch, the site of the family estate. In Acts chapter 13, take out your Bibles and go to Acts 13. In Acts chapter 13, verses five through 7, you read about a man named Sergius Paulus. He was, I believe, a member of the proconsul. Um, Acts chapter 13 and verse 5. Acts 13:5, Acts 13:5. Are you there? The Bible says in Acts 13, 5, And when they arrived at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Now when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God." And so here you just read about this man who was a member of the proconsul. It's kind of like your city, your, your township type people who run, run that little region. That's what the proconsul was. And here it is, Sergius Paulus. And so this discovery, confirms one of the very minor, and I think it's more of more of evidence that, oh man, if we just found like John or Peter or somebody. It, to me, it gives more, more reason to believe that it would be someone minor, not major, that was found. And so here you have a minor, a minor, yes. Um, then next you have the Pool of Siloam. The Pool of Siloam was excavated in 2005 and 2006 okay and John chapter 9 Jesus heals a blind man by putting mud in his eyes and then tells he told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam this pool was accidentally found when they were doing repairs on a drainage ditch system they discovered a couple of ancient steps and there's construction all over these areas and more times than not They have to stop because they find something interesting and then all the archaeologists are called in and they excavate the whole area and then they find something amazing. That's what happened here. When the archaeologists were called in, they excavated and they discovered was a large pool with 20 steps leading down from the street into the pool. Here's some more pictures as they excavated. Okay, That's what the Pool of Siloam looks like. This photo was taken June 24, 2004. Archaeologists Eli Shukran and Ronnie Reich quickly discovered a series of steps leading down to an adjacent garden. Okay? So this is what the Pool of Siloam looked like in the days of Jesus. One of the ways that biblical, or any any archaeologist for that matter, one of the ways that archaeologists um, date what they find is by pottery. Certain pottery has only existed in certain epochs of time, okay? And the, the type of pottery that they, they found at this site dates right to when Jesus would have been alive to send this man to the pool of Siloam, okay? This photo was taken November 7, 2004, and the pottery that, that they found indicates that this pool was in use in the first century. And that is exactly when the story of John chapter 9 takes place. So this is likely the place that Jesus walked and told the man to go into the pool of Siloam and wash his eyes and now he sees. Pretty incredible, huh? And here's the Erastus inscription. This is kind of like your Sergius Paulus thing. Here is Erastus. The Erastus inscription in Corinth has these letters. They're seven inches tall. And at one time they were filled with bronze, and somebody came and and chiseled the bronze the bronze out. When Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, um, he did that from Corinth. He sends greetings to a man named Erastus, the city treasurer, and you'll find that statement in Romans chapter 16 and verse 23. Okay? In 1929, Archaeologists were excavating in Corinth and came across this large paving stone and it clearly says Erastus on it. Okay, um, It dates to the middle of the first century AD and it reads, Erastus in return for his adelship, laid this pavement at his own expense. So apparently this man was quite wealthy. What's an Edel? An Adel was an elected official who maintained public buildings, kept the streets in in good order, oversaw the market, and managed the local games, such as the Isthmian games, which were held every two years in Corinth. Okay? So this Greek word for treasurer is oikonomos, which means manager or, or steward. While an Adel and an oikonomos are not exactly equivalent terms, the term oikonomos could describe a work that an idol would do. Thus, the Erastus that the Apostle Paul mentioned was likely the high-ranking Corinthian official who laid the paving stone at his own expense. And this stone, which clearly reads Erastus, is most likely referring to the biblical person Paul greets in Romans 16.23, just as the Sergius Paulus is most likely referring to the guy that we read about in Acts. Okay, here's, here's uh, this is a pretty big deal right here. Um, the Caiaphas ossuary. Ossuaries were only used in Jerusalem for one period, and it was the period right around when Jesus died. An ossuary is a bone box where the remains of an individual were placed inside of this box, Okay. The ossuary of Caiaphas, the high priest who oversaw the trial of Jesus, has the bones of a 60-year-old man, were found inside of it. Okay, The Jews would take the bones of the deceased, place them in these boxes, and here's what happened. The bones of Caiaphas are inside this box. That's kind of a big deal, right? In 1990, a construction team was building a water park near Jerusalem, when a bulldozer plowed through the roof of a first-century tomb. I mean, can you imagine being a foreman over there? You have to be so careful every time you put your, your, your bucket into the ground. Archaeologists were called in, and they discovered a variety of ossuaries. One that was inscribed with the name Joseph, son of Caiaphas. Okay? Inside were the bones of six people, including those of a 60-year-old man, which scholars believe are the remains of Caiaphas himself. Okay? And so the ancient historian Josephus records that Caiaphas' full name was Joseph Caiaphas and that he held this role from AD 18 to 36. Now, which year did Jesus die in? Nisan 14, 31 A.D., right? That was, that was Passover in on that, on that year. So that fits right within that time period. Okay, so they go digging in the sand, they find stuff, they do, they, do, they, they do construction, and they prove that the Bible is the Word of God. So many scholars are convinced that this is the ossuary of the high priest who played a prominent role in the trial of Jesus. Why is this an important find? The reason why... His ossuary and the physical remains provide evidence confirming the existence of a prominent person. So we have a couple minor people and then now this is a prominent person. The high priest of of Israel. The Caiaphas ossuary is currently on display in the Museum of Jerusalem. So if you go to Jerusalem, you can see his bone box. Then, this is fascinating. This is absolutely amazing right here. This is a stone that was discovered during an excavation of the temple of Jerusalem. What year was the temple destroyed, friends? Who did it? Romans, Romans, Prince Titus specifically was the one who did it. And they excavated that area um, sometime later. And it says the temple warning inscription, a piece of an apple skin there, the 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 temple warning inscription at the istanbul archaeological museum um, trace amounts of red so you have a white stone with red letters what does that mean they really wanted you to read it okay yeah trace uh, trace amounts of red paint have been found within the letters indicating that the inscription once stood out and bright red. So we can see in the scriptures that Jesus spent a lot of time teaching in the temple and Jesus walked past this stone many, many times. So inscriptions have been found. The first is called the Temple Warning. The Temple Warning inscription. This is called the Temple Warning inscription. And the inscription was a warning on a big white stone with red letters for any foreigner who was not a Jew to not go past this point. There was the courtyard of the Gentiles, and then there was a stone that you, unless you were a Jew, kind of like a Mormon, right, that has been initiated or whatever, you can't go into the the, the temple. Same, Same idea. If you were a foreigner, you could worship here, but you could not go all the way in if you were not a Jew, right? And so... In 1871, a French archaeologist, Charles Claremont ganneau discovered a limestone slab with the seven-line warning inscription, the very ones described by Josephus, it reads, No foreigner is to enter within the railing and enclosure around the temple, and whoever is caught will be responsible to himself and his subsequent death. So that's what that, that's what that means. Okay, So, Jesus would have walked past this particular stone several times. And if you, if you write down the text, Acts 21, 28 through 30, Paul brought a Gentile named Trophimus. And he brought him all the way in, which means Paul brought him all the way past this stone and into the, the, the temple of the Jews where no foreigner was supposed to be, right? And it caused a big uprising. That's Acts 21, 28-30. through 30. And when Paul talked about the dividing wall of hostility that was broken down, most Bible scholars believe they're referring to this stone. Ephesians 2.14 For He Himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the what? The middle wall of separation. What middle wall could we be talking about? The wall where that stone was that said that no Gentile could go into the temple. Because ever since Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was stoned, that was, that was Israel's probation to accept Jesus as Messiah. They stoned Jesus in the person of Stephen. And from Acts 8 all the way through 28, the gospel further went to the Gentiles and the Sanhedrin or the Jews as a nation never ever received another invitation to accept and preach Jesus as Messiah. They turned to the Gentiles and now Jesus has made both Jew and Gentile one. Okay? So there is neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You could say it today. There is neither black nor white, Mexican or Italian, for you are all one in Jesus. Okay? So if you struggle with issues of racism, you need to take that to Jesus because that ain't going to heaven. Somebody could say amen. 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 All right. So, it didn't say, but I would imagine, I mean, maybe not quite the size of this because, I mean, that'd be real hard to put in place, but it was probably big enough with the red letters to read. Probably about the size of your TV. All right. So, uh Seventh-day Adventist Bible scholars. This is from the SDABC on on Ephesians 2.14. Literally, partition wall of the fence, meaning a partition wall which is the fence. The imagery may have been derived from the barrier in the temple separating the court of the Gentiles from the court of the Jews. There you have it. Okay? I mean, from Christianity seems to be the focus after 8.00. Of Acts chapter 8, and Judaism is kind of downplayed and reformed in Paul's Paul's writings. Before then, this this wall separated everybody. Okay, then there is the trumpeting inscription. This is an inscription found at the base of the temple mount, which reads, To the place of trumpeting, indicating that it had come from the place where the priest blew the trumpets. Because at the beginning of the day, the priest blew the, the trumpets and the temple was open. And then at the end of the day, the priests blew the trumpets and that meant the temple was closed. So if you're gonna get your laundry in, you better do it between the trumpets, right? So in 1968, an archeologist, Benjamin Mazar, discovered a three foot long stone block that had been destroyed when the Romans destroyed the temple in 70 AD. These two inscriptions are the clearest archeological evidence that we have testifying to the second temple. And the closest we can get to the most hallowed place of Jewish worship, which was in the first century, the temple that was destroyed in 70 AD by Prince Titus and the Romans. Okay, so now let's move on to the Nazareth inscription. The Nazareth inscription is a first century imperial edict pronouncing the death penalty for anyone caught stealing bodies from tombs. Which event in history would be important for someone stealing bodies from tombs? <laughs> you see what history is pointing us right back to the fact that the Bible is the inspired word of God. So in 1878, Wilhelm Frohr, and I know I'm getting all these ethnic names wrong, found a marble slab bearing a Greek inscription from Nazareth. Okay? When he died, his collection was inquired by the Paris National Library where it was rediscovered. In 1930, you guys should have all this information on your, on your handout, I'm like, you should be right there. In 1930, it was translated and, and published by a French scholar, Franz Kumout, causing considerable excitement in the academic community. Another find from the Jerusalem temple. This is an edict of Caesar, likely dating from the reign of Claudius Caesar, which is 41 to 54 AD, It imposes a death penalty upon anyone caught stealing bodies from his family tombs. Now, what was Jesus buried in? A tomb hewn out of a rock. Now, why would Caesar feel the need to make such a decree? Was there a situation that involved possibly a body being stolen? And we're going to talk about that in more detail tomorrow when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Tombs were robbed in in antiquity, but they didn't take the bodies. They took the goods. Like They didn't walk out with King Tut. They walked out with his gold, right? So the situation seems to be directed towards Jews. What situation could this be referring to? Well, probably Jesus. The disciples came at they. In verse 13 of Matthew 28, um, I believe it was Herod that said, "Tell them that the disciples came at night and stole the body away while we slept." And so, therefore, Caesar re- reacted and made a law that no bodies would be stolen, and now there would be a death penalty for doing that. It's absolutely amazing. Okay. Now, this report, no doubt, reached the ears of the Roman emperor, who likely would have seen the new Christian. A sect as a dangerous anti-Roman movement. Dr. Bill Clyde, but uh, Dr. Clyde Billington, Ph.D., is the current president of the Near East uh, Archaeology Archaeological Society and digest edit- editor of Artifacts Magazine. He has studied the inscription and concludes the context of the Nazareth inscription clearly proves it was written for Jews, not Gentiles. In that it was almost certainly issued by Claudius in response to the story of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Okay, now we go to the Gallio inscription. The Gallio inscription from Delphi, Greece, confirms Gallio as a proconsul of Achaia, and dates to the spring of A.D. 52. Why is this an important discovery? The apostle Paul spent one year and a half in Corinth on his second missionary journey. In Acts 18, we read, when, verse 12, When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. So this Gallio inscription is a group of nine fragments that were discovered at Delphi, Greece. It was written by the emperor Claudius, and in it he speaks about guarding the cult of Apollo at Delphi and references Junius Gallo, my friend and proconsul. Okay. So this inscription states that Claudius had been uh, acclaimed emperor um, for the... Imperator for the, sec, for the 26th time, okay, dating it between January and August AD 52. In his book on biblical, biblical chronology, Dr. Andrew Steinman notes that since proconsuls usually took office on May 1st and served for one year. okay. We note that Gallio served as proconsul for Achaia from May 1st 51 to April. 52 a.d why is this important this discovery allows archaeologists to pinpoint when the apostle paul was in corinth and this means that he would have been brought before gallio by the jews sometime in the middle of a.d 51 so this helps us to pinpoint gallio and paul as well as, also as paul as a legit historical figure okay the gallio inscription is a fixed marker by which we can date most of Paul's ministry and much of the history of the early church. Okay? Next we have the Pilate stone. The Pilate stone confirms that it was that Pontius Pilate was a prefect of Judea. So we have here a Pilate stone and you'll see some more of Pilate here in a minute. So we have Legit archaeological evidence that there, in fact, was a man named Pilate, not just in written records. This is, his, this is one of his stones. And they found a dagger of his later. You know, we'll see that in a second. So one of the most infamous history, historical figures of the New Testament is Pontius Pilate. His, his, his historicity has never really been in doubt, as he's mentioned in ancient writers such as Josephus, Tacitus, and Philo. Okay? And the gospel accounts, which also are historical records. Archaeological evidence for his existence was discovered in 1961 when a stone inscription was unearthed in excavations near the amphitheater in Caesarea Martima. Okay. This limestone block was a part of a dedication to Tiberius Caesar, as the stone reads, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. So, more recently, a second artifact with Pilate's name on it came to light. In 2018, a copper ring that had been unearthed during 1968 to 1969, excavations at the Herodium, was cleaned, photographed, and analyzed, revealing the Greek inscription of Pilatus. Since the name Pilate is uncommon, many believe that the ring was once the property of Pilate. It wasn't a knife, it was a ring, I'm sorry, Um, or one of his servants. The Pilate stone or perhaps the Pilate ring provides archaeological evidence supporting the historicity of the historical biblical figure Pontius Pilate who handed Jesus over to be crucified. And here is a big one. This is a huge find right here. This is the P52 manuscript, a fragment of the Gospel of, of John. The John Rylands Library in Manchester, England contains a papyrus. That's what the P stands for, 52. It's a part. This right here, if you can read this, this is John 18, 31 through 30. It's the earliest New testament manuscript discovered to date okay it measures eight point nine centimeters by six centimeters so it's about that big okay it's about that big and on the reverse it is written in on in, uh, one side parts of thirty seven and thirty eight are written in in uh, greek you there's certain websites that you can go to that you can you can it, it translates the Greek for you and then it'll put right here on this line what this says and this line what this says and this line right here what that says. So this is considered one of the biggest finds ever in the history of, huh? You, you got to look at, uh, go to John 18. John 18, 30, 31. John eighteen thirty one says, then Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he, he would die. 33. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Okay? That says what we just read in, in the Scriptures. Um, the papyrus manuscript has been dated to 125 to 175 A.D. They consider, archaeologists consider, a couple things. We want to get as close back to the original manuscripts as possible. And when you find a papyrus scroll with John 18:31 through 33, within 100 years, This is considered a very serious uh, discovery, okay? The interesting thing is where and how it was discovered. See how big it is? That's blown up big time. It's probably not much bigger than this H right here. The whole thing. The P-52 itself was a part of a collection of papyri that scientists... an Egyptian, Egyptologist Bernard Green, Grenfell, FBA, purchased in Egypt, FBA is his degree, um, purchased in Egypt in 1920. It wasn't until 1934 that another uh, scholar, Colin H. Roberts, translated the text um, on the fragment and realized that it was from the Gospel of John. Okay? FBA means Fellow of the British Academy. And since the manuscript was, was discovered in Egypt of all places, this shows that the, that the Bible was copied, and they started making copies of copies all the way back in 125 to 175 A.D. So this, this copy of the Gospels was found in all places in Egypt. Yeah. That's right. Very good. Okay, so the Bible was being copied and circulated all the way back then. The Rylands, talking about the same one, the Rylands Library Papyrus, P52, is one of 5,800 biblical Greek manuscripts, fragmented or complete, discovered so far, in addition to the 10,000 Latin manuscripts, and 9,300 manuscripts in other languages, Latin, Coptic, Syrian, Armenian—it It is their earliest link in the chain that connects the Bible, which we read today to the original manuscripts. So in total, watch this. In total, Bible archaeologists and scholars have compiled an overwhelming 2.6 million pages of biblical texts in the form of ancient manuscripts. Like if you're an atheist, it's because you really try hard at it. This means that we have an embarrassment of textual riches when it comes to New Testament criticism and evidence. The manuscripts are dating back to within a hundred years of the actual autographs. An autograph is the actual paper that John wrote, okay? And then your manuscripts is a copy of that that were handwritten. So the P52 manuscript is the earliest link that we have that connects us between the Bible that we have today and the Bible that the writers actually wrote. And it reads the exact same that you have in your Bible now. Okay? And then this is, I think we're getting right right to the end here. This is the heel bone of a crucified man. So this is actually part of his foot right there. Okay, the heel bone of Yohanan, the son of Hagakal, A man crucified in the first century, the nail is still embedded in his heel bone, testifies to his violent death. Now, the resurrection of Jesus is the most important event to Christianity, period. And you're going to find tomorrow that if there is no resurrection, there is no Christianity. Okay? So we now have evidence of crucifixions. Before this, they were just talked about in history. But now we have physical proof that, that the Romans indeed practiced crucifixion. So many authors wrote about crucifixion, such as Josephus, um, Platus, and Seneca. Okay? However, with the discovery of this heel bone of a crucified victim, the nail still embedded in his scholars, scholars were able to analyze the Roman form of torture crucifixion firsthand. Okay? How, did they, how did they find this? In 1968, a construction crew, here we go, another construction crew had to stop with with the Israeli Ministry of Housing was working at an area in Northeast Jerusalem when they accidentally dug up several tombs. Archaeologists who were called in, who were called in to excavate, discovered numerous ossuaries. What's an ossuary? Bone box. Bone box including one that contained the bones of an adult male who had been crucified. His name was Johannin, which was inscribed on the outside of the bone box, and his right heel bone contained the rusted spike from his crucifixion. So, the analysis of the heel bone and the nail dated to the first century AD. Why is this important? Critics argued that the body of Jesus would have been disposed in a mass grave with other criminals. Okay? They, they usually dumped these types of bodies in the Valley of Hinnom or Gehenna, which worm does not die and its fire is not quenched because they were constantly adding fuel to that fire. Right? It was a trash heap. Because of this discovery, we now see that the loved ones of a crucified individual could actually approach the body and get the remains and put them in an ossuary. This gives credence to the possibility that Jesus could have been taken down by Joseph of Arimathea and put in a new tomb. Okay, So this this concludes our, our, our series on New Testament, but there's even more discoveries that have been made. The tomb of Jesus in the, in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, they believe that that is the actual place where Jesus was buried. First century houses in Nazareth, the Bema seat in Corinth, the seat of Moses in Korazin, Peter's house in Capernaum, the Jesus boat, possibly the boat that he preached, I think the Sermon on the Mount in. Um, the Agora and the great theater in Ephesus, the Pole of Bethesda, Benedict anchors discovered near Malta, um, the P. Sippulus Corinius inscriptions, recent discoveries at El Arish Bethsaida. Okay, what does biblical archaeology do for us? It confirms what we already believe, and just nails it solid. Okay, many Christians accept the Bible, the, the Bible by faith. Now you see it by sight. Okay. We step back and we look at 150 years of archaeological discoveries and it leads us to a conclusion that the Bible is trustworthy. Amen? It reminds us of a powerful scripture. The words of the Lord are pure words like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. Okay? Bible archaeology confirms that the New Testament is historically is a historically accurate document which has been reliably transmitted over millennia. How do you receive it? Okay, this theodicy pertains to the question, where is God and human suffering? If God is so good, why is the world so bad? This is one of the biggest questions that that, um, I was a Bible worker and I was out knocking on doors trying to find Bible studies. And uh, one man said, if God is so good, why is the world so bad? And he told me a terrible story about something that happened to somebody, and I didn't have an answer for him. And I don't know about you, but I don't like when I don't have answers. And when I don't have answers, I don't let them buffalo me. I go read books, and I get information, and I compile a satisfactory answer. Okay? That is what God's people are supposed to do. We used to be called the people of the book. Okay? So, where is God when it, when it hurts? Now, Here's some books to read on this subject. Um, If I were you, I would take a picture of this screen. This is something that Seventh-day Adventists should know more than we do. This this one right here is the only book that is written by a Seventh-day Adventist. David Asherick wrote this book, but David Asherick is no Bible scholar with a PhD and all this. I mean, he's got a PhD in his head, but this guy is the real deal. John Peckham, he's probably got a couple PhDs in his head, but this is the only legit scholarly work in our church on the topic of theodicy, okay? The word, okay, by this one and this one, first, second, this guy is not an Adventist, this guy is, and this book is the book that helped me when my mom died, okay? Okay, the word theodicy is two words, theos, which is God, dike, and judgment. Theodicy literally means justifying God or God and judgment. The German philosopher and mathematician Gottfried Leibniz coined the term theodicy in 1710. His work Theodicy, though various responses to the problem of evil, had previously been proposed. He's the one who came up with the term theodicy. Okay, Who is God or who is God to you? How you answer makes a big difference, okay? You see that this is one of my favorite uh, comics, uh, my my favorite comic guy. I used to read him in in the Sunday morning newspapers. This is Gary Larson's Far Side. And notice the inscription. Can you see what this says? It says smite. God is about to hit the smite button and kill this person, okay? So the... Gary Larson's picture of God is that he is a God of vengeance, okay? So your perception about who God is is going to be the determining factor about how far you can go with him. Our attitude of God is determined by our perception of who God is. And some people think that accepting God means accepting the fact that God is responsible for all the terrible things that happen. For example, a lot of people believe the concept of an early church father named St. Augustine. Anybody here ever hear of him? Yeah. He and a guy named John Calvin are famous for the, the teaching that God always gets what God wants. God always gets what God wants. His will is so powerful that His will cannot be stopped. Not by prayer, not by anything. Whatever God wants, God gets. Is that biblical? It is not. Because if it is, you would have to reason that the fall of heaven was God's plan. And that Adam and Eve eating the fruit was a part of some great plan that God had to reveal something more loving about his character that the death of Jesus could show. Right? So, if we believe that God gets everything that He wants, all the time, then you would have to reason that this experiment that we're in is, is geared for us to know something more about God's love. God did not need sin to show that He is loving, okay? So, then, if, God, if the thought of God gets everything He wants, you have to follow that through to its logical conclusion. God is responsible for sin, because sin happened. And if God always gets what He wants, then He is therefore responsible for sin. Okay? So that means that everything that happens, 9-11, COVID, rape, murder, all of it, is a part of God's plan, according to that world. Upon these terms, many people reject God, and say things like, if that is God, then I want nothing to do with him, and plunge off into some atheism, or what I call Seventh-day Adventist atheism, because a lot of people have this idea that whatever happens is a part of God's plan, and I must learn a lesson from it. Your view of of God is determined in Jesus, okay? Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father, how can you be excited about a God who takes your baby? How could you be excited about a God who 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 uh, tells people to fly planes into buildings and three thousand people are killed in New York City? Okay, I believe that a lot of unidentified and undiagnosed legalism, mechanical religion, is because of our picture of who God is by. False theology in Scripture. And what I mean by that is, you all know the statement that Job made, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. You all know that many people think, well, I say whatever the Bible says and I preach whatever the Bible says. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, so it must be true. Job made that statement in ignorance. And his friends came and told him that God is doing this to you because one, you're a sinner, and two, God is trying to teach you something, and when you learn that lesson, maybe you'll get everything back, okay? That takes place through the subsequent chapters after chapters two, three, and four. But in chapter 42, Job repented of that theology, and he says, I put my hand over my mouth. I have uttered things that I did not understand, things too high for me, but now I have seen you with my eyes. And what he infers is, My theology justified me to reject you because I thought that it was you who was doing all this to me. But now that I see that you're not, you're even better than I thought you ever were. Okay? So, your picture of God is set by Jesus. There are statements in the Gospels where it says that Jesus healed this woman who was bent over, and it says, I don't have all the text you know, in my head, but it says that Satan has bound her for these 18 years. You know the text? Yes. So Satan binds us up, and Jesus makes us straight. Right? So your picture of God is set in Jesus, and if you think that you follow a God that takes babies and flies planes in the buildings and everything that happened, COVID and everything else is, is from God, how can you be excited about that? You can go only a certain distance, and at that point, your religion is geared to getting a reward and avoiding a punishment. I go to church because it's what I'm supposed to do. I don't wanna go to hell, so I go to church. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. This theodicy stuff, the first book of the Bible is Job, okay? That was the first book ever written. What's it all about? It's about theodicy. How important is theodicy to God then? It's very important, okay? Um, I've I've already said all this, said all that. Um, Okay, Matthew 6, verse 9. What do we have here? we got 11 minutes, good. Matthew 6, verse 9. In this manner, therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does this statement tell you about God's will? It's done in heaven, but it's not done on earth. How can we blame God for everything when, this, when Jesus said that God's will is completely being done in heaven, but it is not being done on planet earth? Right? So, when we consider an event, the Bible presents God as reacting to the choices, sometimes good, most of the times bad, to His people who sometimes ask Him what God thinks and most of the time do their thing, right? And so the Bible presents a God that gives us free will, okay? And so here's the thing, the reason why there's pain and suffering on planet Earth is because God's will is being rejected. So therefore suffering cannot be a part of God's will because Jesus told us in this statement, it infers that our prayers is what unlocks God's will to be done on the Earth. And if you're not praying at all, then God's will is not going to be done, okay? This is God's will. Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets, stone those who were sent to you. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not what? Who was not willing? God was willing, but the people weren't. God's will can be rejected. God's will can be thwarted because God has set up and what's called the great controversy, something called the rules of engagement. Satan has parameters that he, can, that he can't go no further, and God has parameters that he cannot go past. God is limited, friends. Okay, God is limited in the sense of the Sabbath is on the seventh day of the week. He has limited himself that the seventh day is the Sabbath, and it cannot be any other day because it's the, the day that he blessed and sanctified. The Bible says God is love. Therefore he cannot be hate because he has declared himself and demonstrated himself to be to be to be love. So God is limited by the way that he presents himself in scripture and he cannot be anything else other than what he is. So when I say God is limited I'm not talking about power I'm talking about character. Okay? So God is love this is important stuff. God is love love gives freedom and freedom takes risk. God is love. Love gives freedom, and freedom takes risk. Apparently, God would rather struggle with our wills than reign supreme over robots. Okay? So here's the thing. Some people say, why did God allow this to happen? Right? Anybody ever ask that question? I asked that question. I went through three years where I lost my faith. After my mom died, I asked God to resurrect my mom right on that gurney. My sister, who is in Adventist, she um, was right outside. And I said, Lord, I was making deals with God. And I said, God, if you resurrect my mom, Charlotte will have to believe. Right? And I squeezed her hand. Text says, if you have faith the sides of a mustard seed, you'll move mountains. I said, well, here's a mountain, God. <laughs> Go ahead. Right? And so I squeezed her hand and she just laid there. And I said, well maybe you he didn't hear me. So I did it again and I squeezed her hand a second time and she just laid there. I was so mad, I wanted to pick the chair that was right up next to me and throw it right into the wall. I was, I was hot. And from that point on, for about three years, I prayed for my food and I prayed for my sermons when I preached and that was about it. Pastors are people. Yeah. They, are not, they are not machines, okay? We struggle like everyone else does. And any one of these pastors that presents themselves like they're so holy, they're not, being, they're, not, they're not being real with you. My wife, I asked my wife, honey, help me to keep it real. Okay? Don't let me start acting like I'm some super, you know, saint. Because I'm, I try to be who I am everywhere I am. Amen. Just be honest with, with yourself. Okay, so here's what happened. Now I'm going to skip power. What do people do when they get power? This is a interview with Richard Nixon, April 6, 1977. The man asked the president, were there no limits to what a president can do even if the president wants to do something plainly illegal? Could he do anything despite the law? Burglary, forgery, even murder? And then Richard's response was, if the president does it, that means it's not illegal. I am not a crook, right? (laughs) Now, it turns out he was, okay? Ephesians 6, verse 12. Notice how the scriptures talk about Satan. The scriptures present that Satan is a defeated person, yet he has a certain amount of power right now over even Christians, okay? The power to tempt, the power to strengthen your nature, right? When you indulge. The power of... He's called the darkness of this age. Okay? And then He is called in John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the, the ruler of what? Of this world. Okay? God has, has stolen... Not stolen, because God can't steal. That's a bad word. God has, has retaken this planet back when He died on the cross. In other words... You can have victory over sin in the Old Testament because of the proleptic promise in Genesis 3.15 that He would crush the head of the serpent. You can have victory over sin today because of what Jesus did when He fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament on the cross. So the purpose of the Gospel is to that we accept Jesus, He takes us just as we are, and then He begins a process in us called sanctification, and we become less like ourselves and more like Jesus, so that when Jesus comes, we look just like him at the second coming. Satan is also called the ruler of this world in John 14 and verse 30. And notice when Satan tempted Jesus, um, the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you. Jesus did not stop him and say, whoa, whoa, you have no authority here. This world is my father's. Because it it was stolen, Adam gave it to Satan when he ate that fruit, and so there was no argument here. Jesus did not correct uh, Satan. he said, um, "Go away from me, right? Because the world does belong to Satan right now because most of its people are following him. okay then John five verse nineteen. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. Whose mind, the what? The God of this age has blinded. Ephesians 2, 2. Calls him the prince and power of the air. Right? Okay. Um, I'm going to skip that. I'm going to skip that. Uh, I'm going to skip that. I'm going to skip that. Now, if everything that happens on earth is God's plan, this is June 6, I think 2020, when they stormed the Capitol building. January, January, 6. January 6, January 6. If everything that happened on earth is God's plan or will, then why would God ask us to even pray in the first place? If our prayer does not affect God at all, why would we bother praying? So the science of, of prayer tells us that our prayers affect God and God has limited himself in the rules of engagement that the answers that, that God's will, in a certain extent, is limited by the prayers of His people, okay? So your prayers enact God, and this is how God has set it up in the Rules of Engagement and the Great Controversy, okay? So your prayer unlocks God's will to be done on planet Earth, and a lot of times when God intervenes, you hear about the person going down the alley, and big thieves come up, and then they look up and they see this big tall figure, right? You hear these stories about how angels materialize and then they let the lady go and uh, the girl either doesn't know about it or she finds out later that some 12 foot tall person was behind her and, and these, these kinds of stories happen. Most of the time they are in responses to um, uh, inter- intercessory prayer, okay? So, all right, I'm gonna skip. Okay, now, what makes God's power so great is that he does not exercise his power in every way that he could because his divine power is guided by his his divine love. Divine power is guided by divine love. So when something terrible happens in the earth, you need to make a difference, write this down, between what God permits and what God promotes. So permission... Versus promotion, promotion, tree of life. Permission, tree of knowledge, because God is love, God gives freedom, and freedom takes risk. He promoted the tree of life, but because of freedom, he permitted them to sin and eat from the tree of knowledge. Why are people raped? Why do babies die? Why do we have COVID? Listen, in a hurricane, there is no why. There is no big, great, you know, um, explanation. And innocent people get hit by stray bullets in war. Just ask some of the people in Ukraine. You hear all kinds of stories. You know, grandmas or babies or children get hit in crossfire between the Russian and Ukrainian uh, fighters. And really the answer is as simple as this. Adam ate a piece of fruit that opened up possibilities that should never have been possible. And sometimes we want really wildly profound uh, explanations. And it's as simple as this God said he promoted the tree of life, but since he gave freedom, he permitted them to eat from the tree of knowledge. And once Adam ate, their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. And when Adam ate of that tree, things were now possible that were impossible. Before the tree was eaten from. That is why bad things happen to good people. Because freedom was abused on earth. Freedom was abused in heaven by Lucifer and his angels. And when someone says, why did God allow this? What you're really asking is, God, why did you give me the choice to do wrong? Why did God give Adam the freedom to do what was wrong?" And what we're really asking is, why didn't God program Adam to never eat from the fruit? In a world where God is love, love gives freedom, freedom gives choice, love is possible. In the other world, where we don't have choice, love is not possible. Since God is love, the text says God is love, He doesn't like love or He has love, God is love. He must therefore always give choice. And when God gives choice, He does not take away the choice when people choose to use their freedom to fly planes into buildings. The Holy Spirit was probably telling those people, divert, you don't have to do this until that plane hit the building in New York City. Okay? The Holy Spirit confronts and we resist God's will, and that is why bad things happen to good people, because of misuse of human free will and angelic free will. Okay, I'm really summarizing a lot here, so I hope you're you're following me. Now, power. I'm going to finish with this. You with me? Okay, good. The temptation in the wilderness. When God said, Let there be light. Boom, and there was light. Was that power? When Jesus stood up on the boat after the disciples were freaking out because they thought that they were going to be drowned in the Sea of Galilee, and he stood up and said, Peace be still. Was that power? Okay, so that's kind of how we tend to think in terms of power by action. But maybe God's power is best displayed by what he wouldn't do. Jesus was 40 days. Anybody here ever been 10 days without eating? Anything? Nothing? Yeah, nobody. Jesus was 40 days without eating or drinking, and he said, oh, those rocks over there, they look like loaves from Mary's oven. Command these stones to become bread. What did Jesus do? He quoted a text from Deuteronomy. Okay. It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Would Jesus use power to benefit his human condition and the extreme, most extreme circumstances? Yes or no? Okay. Fast forward to the cross. They said, Come down and save yourself. And there were at least four people who said, I have a I have a sermon called um, the, um, Come Down from the Cross. And there was at least four individuals who said, come down from the cross. Jesus, in his most extreme condition on the cross, would not use his divine power to benefit his human condition in the most extreme circumstances. Because divine power is guided by divine love. Do you see it? So therefore... The fact that Jesus would not use his divine power to benefit his human condition, even such under dire extremes proves that God will not abuse divine power under any circumstances. Since God uses divine power lovingly and justly, God therefore cannot be responsible for any human suffering. We bring that on ourselves. Okay? Now, remembering that our view of God is revealed in Jesus Christ, this means that when God did not resurrect my mom, I can trust because he, how, how he does and does not use power, I can, I can respect that it was for a good reason and that it was fair. So I can trust God to be fair with the way that he uses and does not use power because he has demonstrated in the scriptures that his divine power is guided by his divine love and that he will not abuse power under any circumstances. And that is why you can trust God in the midst of the crazy world that we live in because it isn't God's fault. Let's pray. Father, with this knowledge, we can confront the things that happen in the world, not just accept that everything is your divine plan. You do bring good out of bad. But Lord, we just we thank, we thank you for the the testimony of Old and New Testament archaeology. We thank you for the testimony of your word because it gives us security that there are limits that Satan has. Help us to live in those limits, Father, and, and let your word have the effect on us that it should. In Jesus' name, amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.